We're continuing our series of talks that has been working through the New Testament book of Romans, which was a letter uh, written by Paul, uh, the early great preacher of Christianity. And he wrote to the Church of God, a group of Christians in Rome, because he hoped that he was going to be coming to see them soon. He hadn't met many of them, but he'd heard reports about them. So he wanted to tell them that he was coming, but he also wanted in telling them that he was coming, try and address a difficulty that he'd heard about that was um, causing trouble in the church. And that's really the context by which we need to, uh, in which we need to interpret and understand this portion that we're going to be reading together today from Romans. And it's Romans chapter 9. So this was a letter that was written with an intention. And Paul's intention was that he would bring a church that was, um, that had become divided, that they would become united again. And that's his, his main purpose in his letter. With that in mind, then let's read this bit of text and then see how it fits into the scheme of what we've already considered and what we know of Paul's uh, overall aim. So Romans chapter 9. And last week, uh, Steve finished up reading up to verse 18. We're going to read verse 18 again just to then take it on through to the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel 
who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So how on earth does this fit into Paul's overall intention to bring unity into a church that's become divided? Let me just say again what had probably caused the division in the church. In chapter 14 and 15, Paul refers to those who are weak and those who are strong. And they have become divided. The weak in the church of God in Rome were Jewish people who had come to realise that Jesus Christ was God's promised Messiah. But because of their history, they felt that it was vital to keep all of God's Old Testament law in a sense to supplement the salvation uh, to secure it for themselves so they felt it was necessary to observe all of the the old testament laws with regards to the celebration of particular days and so on they were the weak there was a group that paul referred to as the strong and he actually identified himself with them which is interesting because paul himself in another letter describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a really, really great Jew. But he identifies with the strong. And they are people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without all of that Jewish heritage. They're Gentiles. And they've come to understand that Jesus Christ is, yes, God's promised saviour and judge. And they have put their faith in what they have heard that God has done through Jesus the Saviour. And they stand on that alone. Trust in Jesus to have right standing with God. Now the language in chapter 14 is, is difficult because it says that the weak. Remember the weak are the, those who feel it's important to observe the Old Testament laws still because of their Jewish heritage. They, they sat in judgment on these Gentiles who were simply believing in Jesus for salvation. Judgmental attitude. But from the other side, Paul says there were some who were in the strong camp. Who were looking um, with contempt on those people who were continuing to do the things of the law. That's what we get from Romans chapter 14 and 15. I think that shapes the whole way we should see this majestic letter in the scriptures that God has given to us. So God, through Paul, is trying to reunite these two factions. Now, of course, there's going to be some that are on, on the extremes, but there are going to be those that are in the middle somewhere caught up. But what probably was the case, sadly, was that the church of God in Rome, we learn from uh, chapter 16, would have been meeting in houses. So probably you can imagine it was going to be a, a Jewish group over there and a Gentile group over there, and they wouldn't necessarily mix. And that's not what the Lord Jesus had come to bring about. He wanted people from Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations to be together to enjoy his things. 
So where does this fit in to um, Paul's overall intention to bring unity? If you remember where we've come from, we can't summarize the previous eight chapters, but he's sort of gone from addressing one side and then the other side and then back again and then addressing all. And probably we've seen that as we've gone through the letter. Romans 8, I think, he has addressed both groups. And he said, look what God has done in the power of his spirit in you all. It's the same spirit who has brought you to life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness with God. And that life that you have with God is unshakable. And it's for all of you, a level playing field. You've all received the same salvation, the same working of the same God, the same Savior, the same Holy Spirit has come to work in you. It's not about your heritage or lack of, however you might interpret it. It's about you as an individual before God and God has done a work to bring you to himself. And then Paul probably um, understands that there are going to be some who are on the weak camp, the Jewish people who are wanting to hold on to the things of the Lord, saying Paul's just jettisoning all of the Old Testament. And Paul hasn't been doing that and he's, he's taken a lot of time in Romans 7 and Romans 6 to, to say that's not what he's been doing. But here he seems to come back round to it again. And his main purpose in Romans 9, I think, in the full intention of his letter, is to remind the Jewish believers, with any Gentile ones who are listening in, that God is working out his eternal plan of salvation. And it's great, and it's powerful, and it's glorious. And God is the one who is in absolute control of that. And if God is the one who has worked to bring us, whether we're Jew or we're Gentile, to bring us into this salvation that he has secured for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, if God has done that, then let's give him the praise for it. And let's leave behind the things that would divide and come together in the things of Christ. He wants to remind the Jewish believers who might be questioning, is it right for the Gentiles to actually have a part in this? That the inclusion of the Gentiles through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved is all part of God's plan of salvation. Romans chapter 9 is really Paul saying that to them particularly, but to any who were listening and to us as well, is that God chooses individuals but also nations and works through individuals and works through nations to achieve the end goal of his great plan of salvation because God is the great creator who is in charge of it all. So this is all about God's eternal plan to save sinners. Our hymn made reference to Genesis chapter 3 where after humanity had rebelled against God and God comes and he speaks to the serpent that had deceived humanity into rebelling against God. He made a promise there that there would be a seed of the woman who would bruise, crush his head and in so doing would he would bruise the heel of that seed. 
That was a promise right at the very beginning when humanity had rebelled against God. And that set in motion God's great plan of salvation where everything that is said against God would be crushed. But yet there would be those who would enjoy the victory with the one who would do the crushing. That then develops and it only takes 12 chapters at the beginning of our Bible to see it. And it comes to Abraham who the Jewish people would look to as their, as their father. We're descended from Abraham. And that was important because God had said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through this nation, through your descendants, there will be a seed, one who will come, who will be a great king over all the earth. And through him, all peoples on earth will be blessed. It's almost as if the Jews in the time of the Lord Jesus and afterwards when Paul was preaching had lost sight of that reality. That it was through them that God's blessing would come to all nations. What we see from Romans chapter 9 as Paul rehearses that history again for the Jewish believers. Is to show them that the Jewish nation, the people, they were a vehicle, if I can say that, for God to bring his plan of salvation to its focal point in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, who was himself a Jew, descended of Abraham, yes. But God had worked, even in the face of Israel, Jewish rebellion against God, and actually hatred for God. That's what the Old Testament prophets speak of, that they, they said that the things of God were a weariness, and they, they hated the things of God. That even through that, God would save some, a small group out of them. And through that small group would come the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the saviour of all people who have faith in him. So Romans chapter 9 is often seen as a difficult chapter because it talks about, is referred to as divine sovereignty, which means God's right as the creator to rule over his creation and to determine what would occur in that creation set against what's known as human responsibility which is each person's accountability to God as creator and we see the working of God here that God is is the one that's in absolute control but yet each human being is accountable to God for their actions and their decisions now Paul does not try to resolve the tension of that that exists in scripture. He just lays it out for us again. He anticipates here that somebody is going to turn around to him from the Jewish camp and say, well, if, if God shows mercy to him every wishes, then why would he still find fault with anybody? And maybe a Gentile person could ask that as well. Maybe we can ask that. I mean, that's a question we can do if we come to the point where we think, well, if God's in complete control, then I can't be held responsible for whatever might happen in my life. And Paul doesn't actually address it. He just says, you need to recognize that God is the one that is in absolute control. And he is described then as a potter who has control over the vessels that he would make. And Paul was borrowing from the Old Testament. Now in this section here. That we're just focusing in on today. Very quickly. 
Paul um, makes multiple allusions to the Old Testament and quotations from there. So that, I think, shows us that he was a, probably addressing the Jewish faction in the church. And he's wanting them to see that God is the one to be honoured. Now this is not something new. God has already spoken this before. And this idea of him being a potter, um, the intention I think that Paul is getting at here is let's not get caught up in what it is that God, how God does things. It's what he's doing. He says that vessels are either for destruction or are objects of mercy. Now, that is difficult for us to take. But, but God is in control. Paul says we can't answer back to God who knows infinitely more than we can and ever will. God is righteous in all that he does. The scriptures show us that. Paul is not attempting to explain why God would show mercy to some and not to others. When in fact God didn't have to show any mercy to any at all. We should never forget that. His emphasis in this little section here about the potter and so on. Paul is wanting us and those who were listening first off. To see that, that God was wanting vehicles for his purposes, his plan to be realised. What is glorious in this though is that whenever we we view that God was was wanting to use and, and we recoil from that language it's almost as if we become pawns on the chessboard and so on we have to step back from that and say that's not it because he holds us responsible for our decisions and our choices the tension is always there but God as the one who has an absolute control of everything is going to work out his plan of salvation and it's through individuals and it's through nations that he will do that and there are some out of sinful humanity whom God had every right to destroy he will save some by showing them mercy he did it for Israel he saved some because of his mercy and he does it for humanity he saves some because of his mercy so that as the text says the riches of his glory here it is the riches of his glory might be made known to the objects of his mercy. It's God revealing the glory of who he is in being a merciful God. Let's praise God for his mercy, is what Paul is saying here. And that, he says to the Jewish faction, that you praise God for the mercy that he has shown to you, and also to the mercy he has shown to those who you think are undeserving of it because they've never kept any part of the law. So don't sit and be judgmental. Recognise that we're all sinners before a holy God. And we cannot save ourselves. It's only by the mercy of God and his working. And the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be saved. Praise God that we are objects of his mercy. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18. Please. Luke chapter 18 and Jesus himself as 
Luke tells us in uh, Luke 18 verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a, that's a proper law-keeping Jew there. And the other a tax collector, somebody who sided with the Gentiles, despised. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. And I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. While this is a difficult passage for us to spend time with, we see that Paul is wanting Everybody in his audience to understand God's mercy comes to those on whom God sets his mercy. And it's so that he would show his glory. And all are sinners and are deserving of his punishment. But yet in his mercy God will save some. And he will save them through the Lord Jesus. God will do a work in us. To show us like the tax collector the Lord Jesus referred to. Of an unworthiness before God. And actually more than an unworthiness, a sinfulness before a holy God that creates in us the need to cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a work of God in the individual. And God will hear that cry. And the call of salvation that has come from God will be heard by that sinner and they will run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one he has provided and the one who died on the cross, that sin might be taken away. That's the good news of the gospel. And it levels the field for everyone. And Paul wants the people in the church of God in Rome to know that. So they can come back together on the same things. Paul is telling this Jewish faction here, using Isaiah's words and so on. Look, Israel, don't get above yourselves. Because there was actually a time when you were just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Read that. And you should have been punished just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But because God would made a promise to Abraham and he made a promise in the Garden of Eden. He was going to work out his purposes. God saved a small group of the Jews so that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham would come. The Lord Jesus Christ. God was working his purposes so that one would come. Out of that small saved group, the Messiah would be revealed. Out of such depravity. God would bring one who will be the saviour let's never forget that it's out of the greatest evil that the world has ever seen the crucifixion of God's son who was sinless humanity, God and man one flesh two natures, wonderful mystery out of that greatest of evils has come the greatest of blessings, the salvation of those who will trust in the saviour Paul ends up this portion by saying that the Jews, many of them, had not been able to achieve the righteousness that they felt they could achieve by keeping the things of the law. They thought they could make themselves right before God. Isaiah spoke about the people 
and how they were doing all the things that were spoken of in the law in terms of keeping religious practice and so on, but their hearts were very far away. It's possible to do religion and have absolutely nothing to do with God. And Paul finishes up with that and says, you be careful, Jews, that you're not there. Be sure that your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what it is that has brought you into a righteous standing before God. Don't fall into the trap of those things again. But he uses it to emphasize, doesn't he, that it's not by works that we are saved, but it is by faith. It's trusting in God, the God who makes promises that he always keeps. And it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ whom he has provided to be the only saviour of sinners. There is no other way to deal with our sin. God has provided the only way that sin can be dealt with and it's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has worked through history and humanity to bring him here to us. And this one was crucified on the cross for us. And more than that, he was raised to life for us. Now we recognise that our sin requires the justice of God to come on us in all of his punishment, judgment. And there's nothing we can do that will prevent that from coming. Then we have to run to the saviour that God has provided, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we know what it is to be an object of mercy. And we stand back and we see the glory of God revealed in him. It's righteousness by faith. The right standing before God by faith, not by works. Go with me very quickly, please, to Titus chapter 3. Where Paul speaks of this again in another place. Titus chapter 3 and he says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Enslaved means you can't get out of it. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You can't get out of it yourself. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, in the person of his Son, of course, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. God is merciful to sinners who recognise that they can do nothing but appeal to him for his mercy. And trust in the saviour provided. So Paul finishes up. With a quotation. From Isaiah. That's actually a quotation that melds two. Uh, verses in Isaiah together. About the stumbling stone. He talks about the stone. That we're told in the prophet Isaiah. Was chosen by God. Placed in Zion. The centre place of God's purposes. In, in Israel. In Jerusalem and so on. The centrepiece of God's purposes. And he's described as one that people stumble over. So we come in our journey of life. And we come to recognising that there is a God who is holy. And we, we have a problem because of that. And then we are faced with the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we going to do with him? Are we going to allow him to be the blockage? The stumbling stone? turns around and it says that ultimately he will crush us for that. Or, by faith, are we going to see that this one that stands in the way is actually the means of our life with God himself. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble. 
and a rock that makes them fall. But the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The one who believes in this one that is in the way then actually goes with this one for the rest of their lives, for eternity, into the purposes of God. Finally, Romans chapter 15, please. Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. Paul, having spent so much time trying to remind the Jewish element of his audience of God's working in Israel in mercy and in the Jews in mercy, it's the same God working in the same way through his mercy and through the same Savior, then appeals at the end of his letter. Remember, this is all part of his appeal for them to... Well, let's read it. 15 verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you. With all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.